You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, if you have your Bible. It's a story that some of you may have heard growing up, going to children's church or different Sunday school classes, and it's not just a lesson that you shouldn't lie to your parents. Although if you want to apply it that way for your kids afterwards, that'll work. But I think God has more for us than just that in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And one of the things we've been talking about in this series is that church is supposed to be like family. We should be a spiritual family together. And we see that throughout the New Testament, not just in the book of Acts. Uh, We see uh, believers calling each other brothers and sisters. Uh, Some theologians will talk about that the way that we're supposed to live together in unity, like Jesus prayed about in John chapter 17, is a demonstration of the relationship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have as we're united in who we are and the mission that we're on. Uh, You see throughout the scriptures language used like Paul calling Timothy his son in the faith. Jesus referring to the church as the bride of Christ. And that we talk to one another in ways that uh, would require an intimacy. That goes beyond just an acquaintance or coming to an event. That we live out these 59 commandments, the one another's of the New Testament. And even when we become a believer, the language that's used, John chapter 1 verse 12, that we'd be given the right to be called children of God. Ephesians chapter 1, being adopted into his family. And so we're part of a family together. But I want to ask you right now, how many of you here would say that you identify with a biological family? Maybe you're born into, adopted into, how is it not more people? You, oh, there we go. All right. Just wondered. Some maybe There might be a couple that don't, but I didn't think it was 40%. But anyway, <clears throat> next question is the real penetrating question. We'll see if you're honest with one another and how many of you actually look at each other when I ask this question. How many of you would say that that family has problems? Kids looking at their parents. Like you said when we got out of the car, don't say a word. He asked, what am I? Don't lie at church. Trust me. We're going to get to the passage in a second. I don't know what those problems are. You think through those for yourself. There maybe there was a division, uh, disagreements. Maybe there's broken relationships, abandonment. Some people are overbonded. Some people are absent. Some you know divorce happens. Uh, financial disagreements. You went into a, you know somebody took a business agreement and thought because we're family we don't really have to. And now people don't talk. Like all kinds of things happen. I don't know what it was for you, but I want you to kind of put that in the forefront of your mind. Remember, there's good and bad with family. Good part of family is you have a place to belong. That should always be true of a church. We have a place for you. Uh, You have a support system. It should be unconditional love. There's forgiveness. And in dysfunctional families, there's bad communication. There's all kinds of hurt and problems and ways that relate that are unhealthy. And all of that's usually mixed up together, right? And so I didn't want to ask you if you have a dysfunctional family because what's a functional family? We're all sinners. So I just asked if you have problems. And sometimes problems get magnified, whether it's Thanksgiving dinner or it's a road trip. I was, I was on a road trip last week uh, with one of my daughters. Uh, she plays soccer, and she had a soccer tournament, and she was going to be in, we were in Williamsburg, Virginia, got in the car, just her and I, daddy-daughter time, drive up there, and so I'm taking care of everything. One of the things I'm trying to teach her, so heads up if you're like middle school, young high school age boy, is how her future husband should treat her protecting and providing for and supporting her and serving her. And so, you know, open the door, an umbrella, like all the gentleman type stuff. But looking for opportunities to serve. And the problem of the tournament was three games, one uniform. (laughs) 
And we're staying at a hotel, so it's not like they had a washer and dryer in the room. And so I'm trying to figure this out. And normally it'd be like, all right, that's fine. Just tough through it. You'll be all right. But in the first game, she got her uniform bloody. And then the second game, it rained. And so it was going to smell all musty. And so I said, hey, I'll wash your uniform. I didn't know how I was going to do that. But she's eating dinner in the room. And I go, give me the uniform. I take the uniform. I go down to the front desk. And I'm like, hey, do you happen to have laundry service? They said, yeah, for guests, there's a, a laundry room that we've got back there. Use your key card. You can get in there. So I'm like, all right, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But I go back there. And they must have gotten from, you know, some place that donated a laundromat that couldn't use these anymore, washer and dryer. And you had to pay for them, which I thought, that's kind of a weird thing at the hotel. It just seemed like you charge enough for the room that maybe $1.50, that seems a little cheap on your end. But why couldn't you just raise our rate $1.50 and then nobody's actually going to, most people aren't going to use it. You just make more money and call it curtsy. any rate, whatever. But here's the really bad part. It didn't take credit card. I had to have quarters. I had to have 12 quarters. That's a lot of quarters when you don't have any. And so I don't know what I was going to do. I went to the front desk. And I said, all right, I've got a few $1 bills. Can I get some quarters? They said, oh, we don't carry cash here. <laughs> I said, do you realize the irony of the, your chart? Any rate, um, all right, I'll find them somewhere else. And so I go to my wife's glove box. Yes, that is an illustration in and of itself. <laughs> How many of you, when you were kids, went to the dentist and they had those little treasure boxes? Like if you didn't have a cavity, but you didn't know what you were going to get. You could get a terrible prize, like floss, you know, the dental floss, or like a matchbox car, and you're like, jackpot. And so in my wife's glove box, I mean, it could be like an old package of ketchup that's now brown, <laughs> or Bitcoin, like you don't know. You just don't know. And so I'm digging through, and I'm looking, and I find quarters, but every quarter I find has unique symbols on the back of it, which I'm not a coin collector, but I've read enough articles to know some of these might actually be valuable. I don't want to use these. So now I'm on a quest through the entire city of Williamsburg at 9 o'clock at night trying to find quarters. So I say, go to the gas station. All the gas stations apparently close at 8 o'clock. So Williamsburg wraps up early there. So I couldn't get, I could get gas, but I couldn't get change. And so I found a 7-Eleven, I don't know if you've seen those or not. And uh, I thought, well, I don't want them to think I'm here just to get quarters, so I'll buy some stuff. Then I'll put some $1 bills on the counter and say, could I get some quarters? So I buy some soda and snacks and, can I get some quarters? Oh, quarters, all we have is dimes. I'm like, Williamsburg doesn't even have quarters. <laughs> Finally, I found some, long story short, at a Holiday Inn Express. Put that in your notes because I was staying at a Marriott. Don't go there unless you're looking for what I'm about to tell you. I got enough quarters from the Holiday Inn Express that I only had to use one of the quarters from my wife's glove box. And so I washed the uniform. She probably played better because of that. I'll at least take some credit in that sense. I get home, so she plays the game three hours later, and you know our phones are listening to us. I don't know how, the algorithm, Edward Snowden, don't get into that right now, but here's the, it knows what I'm living, and so there's this article that pops up on my newsfeed that says, Bicentennial Quarters, still in circulation, worth $90 million. And I'm like, that's the one I used! <laughs> so, Marriott, Williamsburg, Go today, right now, if you'd like. We'll, you can give me, give me 10%. Not giving it to the church, just saying. Tear apart that washing machine. They don't need it anyways. If you had $90 million, 
how much of it would you spend to fix your family problems? And what if fixing the problem for your family actually fixed it for other families too? I saw the founder of Lululemon this week, billionaire, is spending $100 million of his own money to try and cure a disease that he has, a rare muscular disease, but 43,000 other people have it too. So if he could cure it, how much money would you spend to cure that family problem? Because here's the reality, even in God's family, we're still sinners and there's problems. And what we see in our passage today is the pathway to a functional family in the family of God. The story about Ananias and Sapphira who lie and they die, that's pretty blunt. Uh, Keep in mind, this isn't the Old Testament, this is the New Testament. This is the church, this is not Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is not sexual sin, this is not building idols on some altar. Look at what happens here in this passage. Those of you who haven't been with us, in Acts chapter 1, what happens is that Jesus gives the vision for the church. He's passing the baton. His work is finished. He's died on the cross, resurrected. Forty days later, he's standing on the Mount of Olives, and he says, all right, you guys are up. You're the plan. Here's the problem. There's a bunch of people that I died for. They don't know me. So you go tell them, be my witnesses, what you've experienced of me and what they can experience of me. But don't do it on your own. Hold up. Chapter 2, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. Then we start to see what followers of Christ look like when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, God starts to reverse the curses that we see in the Old Testament. The Tower of Babel, where everybody was divided and separated by different languages, is brought together at Pentecost. 3,000 people that died at Mount Sinai. Now there's 3,000 people at Pentecost given new life. And that's a macro picture of what things look like. And Pastor Dave taught last week about the church's family. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, the apostles' teaching and prayer. And they were giving to one another. And you see this generosity. And then, chapter 3, we zoom in and we get a case study. Peter and John are walking into the temple and there's this guy who can't walk. Peter walks up to him and says, silver and gold I do not have. The Marriott's out of quarters. But what I have is Jesus. That doesn't clean a soccer uniform. But he says to the guy, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. Then Peter starts to boldly preach. But he gets arrested. In chapter 4, he's arrested by the Sanhedrin, the, that time frame's Supreme Court. But they can't try him because the guy's healed and everybody's praising God. And they say, we don't know what to do. I mean, the guy's 40 years old. In fact, I think we have a video of him. Pretty sure. I'm a man. I'm 40. Sure he is. I'm not, a, I'm not a kid. I'm a man. I'm 40. I'm not a, I'm not a kid. Some of you. I'm a man. I'm 40. All right, all right. We got I'm it. We got a, it. I'm not a kid. That's Acts chapter 4, verse 22. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a kid. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. He's a man. So they release Peter and John, and they say, but don't do anything else in the name of Jesus. And they say, we have to talk about what we've seen and heard. We're witnesses. Then they go, and this is the part we often don't talk about, and they pray with their family. Then we get a summary of what the church is like at that time. And then verse chapter 5 and verse 1, it says this. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Sarah, or Satan, I don't know who Sarah is, I just read that wrong, Sorry, Sarah. We love you. I'm not calling you Satan. (laughs) How is it that Satan has so filled your heart 
that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. But you could have done that, is what he says next. Didn't the land belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? So what did they do wrong? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Do you think? If any of you lied earlier in the service, now's your moment. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. She turned off Life 360 that day. She didn't know. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price? And so we don't actually get told the dollar amount. Apparently he's holding up a notebook or something. Uh, Is this the price you and I has got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband, what, are at the door. And they'll carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in. They thought they were done working, and they're like, bodies keep piling up, Peter. What are you doing? Finding her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church. And all who heard about these events, every family has dysfunction. This passage of scripture demystifies some of the romanticism that we can put on the early church where everything was perfect and there's everybody was living in harmony and they, they all gathered together at the apostles' feet. Now remember, there's about 10,000 of them by chapter 5. And we know they're gathering together at this place called Solomon's Portico. It's this colonnade, this area where there's these big pillars, a, a porch outside the temple. But 10,000 of them and there's non-believers that are coming too. And they're watching what's happening and Yeah, the apostles are teaching and miracles are taking place and they're praying together and they're sharing meals and needs are happening, but there's persecution. They're being told you're going to be arrested if you talk about this name. We know from history that they're being canceled. That didn't start now. Cancel culture is not new. Uh, If you're a believer, nobody's going to your shop to buy your goods anymore. So that's why they're giving of some of their assets, people who have land to sell, and they're giving money so that other people have groceries. It's not so everybody has the same. So people are surviving. But not everybody's doing right, even in doing good. There's sin. And when you put a bunch of sinners together, guess what they do? Even Christian sinners. Our default mode is sin. And so we sin. And if you put us together and we're close enough for long enough, marriage, team, staffs, businesses, we sin. And we sin against each other. But then what? And what oftentimes happens, what's happening more and more today, is that people get more and more divided and then more and more isolated. Now, it's layered. I don't want to overly simplify why it is that we're so isolated in our culture today. It's not just because American you know, ideology is individualism. That's a piece of it. We celebrate self-reliance, people pull themselves up by their bootstraps, individual achievements, that's a part of it. Social media, ironically, gives us another way to connect with people, but it's made us more and more isolated. George Barna recently did a study of people inside the church and outside the church and asked them, what's the most important thing the church can address? On the list were things, human rights issues, racism, hunger, like a lot of global issues overwhelmingly, 
the response that people outside and inside the church said. It was the one thing that there was like agreement on is loneliness. What is loneliness? The Surgeon General came out in May of 2023, last year, and said that loneliness is when our need for connection is ex- it exceeds our actual connections. And says that we're in an epidemic of loneliness in America, where one out of every two Americans is clinically lonely. And he goes on to talk about how likes and follows are not the same as actual face-to-face encounters. But he says it's a real issue. His exact quote on how dangerous this is, he says, in terms of your lifespan, continuing to live in loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Feeling lonely increases a person's risk of heart disease by 29%, the risk of stroke by 32%. Hmm. The Surgeon General, again, was the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, Murky, Murthy? So the poor, insufficient social connection is associated with risk, not just heart disease and stroke, which I mentioned, but also anxiety, depression, even dementia, and goes to list a bunch of stuff you don't want health-wise. A couple church folks that do research on these things, one guy, Kerry Newhoff, he says that uh, millennials, number one thing they want from church is not pyrotechnics, great teaching, and an awesome band. It says your time, your heart, your attention, a chance to actually connect with other people. And he says that churches that elevate community will do better with millennials than churches that don't. William Vanderblumen, he's got a Vanderblumen Association group that does research on these things, says that the crave for connection on a personal level is the number one desire of millennials. But here's the reality. Millennials, that's not the youngest group, are not the loneliest people. It's Gen Z. 18 to 25-year-olds specifically, uh, Gen Z, 12, I think, to 27 years old is Gen Z. Uh, Harvard study said that 61% of adults from 18 to 25 reported serious loneliness compared to 39% across the general population. So they're the ones that are actually elevating this into such a high level of need. Joseph Hellerman, a theologian, he wrote the book, When the Church Was Family, Recapturing Jesus' Vision for Authentic Christian Community. That sounds relevant to what we're talking about. So the spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and fellow human beings. He goes on to talk about how bad it is to church bounce around from place to place, church shop, he calls it. He says, because when you stay in one spot, when there are problems, you're forced to work through the problems. But oftentimes we don't do that. We just disagree with somebody and we divide. So as a culture as a whole, but then also in the church. And so Barna can tell us, the Surgeon General can tell us, you know, Kerry Newhoff and different theologians can tell us, God told us in the very beginning of the Bible, it's not good for man to be alone. That's not just because Adam wouldn't do his own laundry. It's probably true, but it's because you weren't created to be alone. The problem is when you're together with other people, there's problems. It's all those other people that are the problem. Partially true, about 50%. And I'm going to tell you the problem that we see in this passage starts off with pride. That's our first point. See, isn't the problem that they lied? Well, they did lie. Isn't the problem greed? Well, they were greedy, kind of, maybe. They gave away a lot of money. The root of it all, I think, is pride. They did lie. They did die. Can you imagine if that happened today? Like I've joked before. 
Uh, church attendance goes down when it rains. It must be nice out today. There's a lot of people here. <laughs> Can you imagine if people died from lying at church? Ain't nobody coming. I'd be gone. Everybody, I don't know how many of you be gone. We've all, probably we've all lied. And God does hate lying. Lying's not good. Like Jesus is the truth. It's in the top 10 commandments. Don't lie. We've all lied at some level. But underneath that, I think what we see here is pride. Because you try and put yourself in the place of Ananias and Sapphira. How do they get to the spot where they would conspire together to say that the amount of money they were giving, which must have been a good size amount, we don't know the number, was the total number for the land that they sold, and they held some back. But Peter said, hey, wasn't that all your money, and you could do whatever you want with it? The answer is yes. So what's their sin? It says that they lied to the Holy Spirit, that Satan filled their heart. And so we got to ask ourselves this question, were they believers? I think they were. When you put it in the context of this passage, the message is to the church. It was the whole church that was fearing God as a result of this. Why would the whole church be fearing God if it was something that happened to somebody outside the church? They've got a relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's the way that Peter's talking to them here. And so I think they are believers, but their hearts were filled with Satan. How's that? Remember, filled with. I'm saying they're possessed but they're being strongly influenced. We talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit. I use the examples of being filled with jealousy or filled with anger and how that has such an influence over your emotions and your actions, your perception. The book of Ephesians talks about being filled with the Spirit and not being filled with wine, being drunk. And so I'm sure no one here knows what that's like, but the idea there is that it controls your decision-making alters your ability to discern things and can be filled with compassion. It can be good and bad things. And so we see filled with the Holy Spirit, but you can be filled with evil spirit as well, even as a follower of Jesus from what this passage says. A pastor may have told you, can't happen to you. Okay, the text says that though. But why do I say that it's pride? I think the key is you put it in context, this passage. Context, always key. So am I just making it say that it's pride? Well, look at the context. Acts chapter 5 and verse 1 started this. Now a man, okay, now is the first word. Now after what? If you've got the ESV or some other translations, uh, I think it's an even more clear contrast. They translate that first word that's originally in Greek, same word, but they translate it different, different translations. But a man named, you just start, if I just came in this morning and I was like, but here's the thing. You'd be like, what? Something's going on there. It ain't happening here. Like, what happened just before this? The context. The context is, in Acts chapter 4, we won't go all the way back to verse 32. There starts to be a summary of the church, but look at verse 34 with me and put it on the screen. Uh, That there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then there's a case study. Here's an example. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, and then we get his name, what it means, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, but... So what we have is that Ananias is a contrast to Barnabas. The stories are contrast. Now, we don't know how much either one of them gave. For all we know, the gift that Ananias gave was more money than the gift that Barnabas gave. But what we see, Barnabas, son of encouragement. Do you know what Ananias' name means? God is gracious. 
whoa, that's interesting. So one guy, his life demonstrates his name. Another guy, not so much. Barnabas, an example of generosity. Ananias, not so much. Barnabas gives for the sake of others' needs. Ananias gives for his own glory. That's why I'm arguing this is pride. You see, one of the problems with talking about pride in the church in America, especially in the communities like ours that are over church and under Jesus, is that we get this simplified definition of pride where we think that pride is the arrogant. It's the cocky person. Well, that, that's most likely true. But pride is so much more subtle than that. All pride means is an inflated view of self. And people who have an inflated view of self in the church context, often when they're over church and under Jesus, learn there are certain behaviors that if you want glory for yourself that you can get. And one of the ways you do it is, no, no, try cliches, all glory to God. Which, it's true, all glory to God, but it's good that you serve, but when you're setting up chairs and you're looking around to see who else isn't setting up chairs, that's probably not the service we had in mind. When you're giving your gifts so that you get praise from people, so people pleasers, beware, pride is very dangerous. If you're doing things for other people, for the response from those people, that's pride. If you read the story of Ananias and Sapphira and think, man, I know who needs to hear this, that's probably a sign. See, we all hate hypocrites, right? so intriguing, though, because the word actually means someone who is an actor, someone who is under a mask is literally the word. And we give awards to actors. We praise, no, sometimes. I mean, it's weird now. I saw a thing, Brendan Fraser did this movie, I think it was, and the, people were mad at him that he played the role of an overweight person, and they were saying, why doesn't an actual overweight person? And I'm like, it's acting! <laughs> but we've lost our minds, so I don't know. But, usually, but like if an actor uh, kills a bunch of people in a movie, we don't arrest him afterwards because we know he's acting. But when someone's acting in their real life, people despise that. You're trying to make people think something about you that's not true. And the problem in an image-conscious culture, which we live in, think about how much money is spent on Botox and tanning and you know, filters on social media and all that, all that stuff. That means we care what other people think. And when that's the danger in that, I'm not saying you shouldn't dress nice, but the danger in that is that you focus on what's happening out here and you miss what's going on in here. And that's what's happened to Ananias. Does Ananias know that he lied to the Holy Spirit? Or is that news to him when Peter says it? Because we see Jesus confront the religious leaders. He says to them in Matthew chapter 23, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries. That's what they carry their verses in. Wide and the tassels on their garments, their prayer tassels, long. They love the place of honor at banquets. I've been to a lot of fundraising events in Raleigh. It's usually the same people. The most important seats in the synagogues, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. <laughs> Come up to me in the lobby. Scott, no, it's Pastor Scott. <laughs> now, with your kids, I might say that. Mr., doctor, if I don't want you dating my daughter, pastor, whatever, if I think you're up to something. Anyway, but they're keeping people at a distance by what's on the outside because they're afraid of what's on the inside. Pride is deceptive. 
and often so deceptive we don't even see it. You want an example? Don't have time to dig into the whole passage, but when David sins with Bathsheba and then somebody who loves him enough to be gracious and truthful named Nathan comes to him, tells him a made-up story to teach a real truth about a rich guy who robs a poor man. And David is irate. How could a rich guy, King David, rob a poor man? Like your friend that you had killed and you because you slept with his wife, his one wife, and you got a lot of wives. And then Nathan says, you're the man. Oh. Then he sees it. He didn't see it before that moment. What would have happened to Ananias and Sapphira if they just had one other couple that they were honest about what they were doing with? Hey, we're going to keep back some of the money, but we're going to say it's all the money? Wouldn't you just, why? Well, now we're going to get to your heart. Because we want people to, th- why do you care what people, th- why are you giving because of what people, th- I thought we were giving because they didn't have any food to eat. It's one of the reasons we don't want people in, because of what they'll see. The problem is pride, but there's power in authenticity. That's our second point. There's power in authenticity. Oftentimes overlooked in the early church was the power of their authenticity. Just think about when I was sharing the context of this passage, and Peter is coming into the temple, and there's a guy asking for money. You don't think Peter had any money? They were eating. Had some money. If he just wants to do what the person wants, how many people walked by that? He's a man. He's 40. He's been there his whole life asking for all. And just gave, because the other people would see them giving the money, or because that's what he wants. We need to help give him what he wants. Said Peter is bold enough to give him what he needs. Some authenticity. How about the fact that Peter and John, after they're arrested, don't go around going, we don't care if you beat us. They go back to their people, their family. They say, will you pray that we keep being bold? And and pray? And so what you see is, a lot of times we want this public ministry, but you don't see all the times what happens in the privacy and the authenticity of family is what prepares us for when we are in the public ministry. If we neglect that, Where's the power coming from? Look at what they pray. So it's on their release in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Then you get their prayer. They pray some scripture. Verse 29, it says, Now the Lord considered their threats. Enable your servants. So we're not, we can't do this on our own. To speak your word with great boldness. And Peter's probably like, I can say a lot of stuff. It's usually dumb on my own. But if you'd give me great boldness, stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders to the name, the name's what they were forbidden to use, the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And they prayed, and the place where they were meeting was shaken. Whoa. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, so there's a contrast. Barnabas, Peter, John filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias filled with Satan, but also a follower. Probably afraid to let anyone know that. Probably didn't even know all of that himself. Probably couldn't even see that. And one of the dangers of isolation, individualism, is that we don't even see our problems. People like to quote 1 Samuel 16. Don't judge me. Man looks at the outward. God looks at the heart. He does. Are you sure you understand that truth? 
Jesus himself says it to a church in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, the church of Thyatira, uh, it says, you serve and you love and you take risks, but you tolerate sexual sin, and so my judgment's going to come and your children are going to die. And then he says, why? Chapter 2, verse 23, so you know I'm not making this up, and you can go look at the full context yourself if you'd like. He says, Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will pay each of you according to your deeds. You reap what you sow. And so Sapphira comes back in, three hours late, opportunity to repent, opportunity to be honest. Does she even know? Jesus confronts another church in the book of Revelation. I want you to know before I read you about the church of Laodicea, they were a center of research. They were very wealthy. They were known for their textiles, specifically black wool. They had gold, and they were famous for their eye ointment, which is interesting to me as I was studying this passage this week, because on Sunday, after Pastor Dave preached his message, my eyelids started to get sore. I didn't know why. I hadn't studied yet this week, and I started to get a sty on my eye. I text messaged. I got a great eye doctor. She attends the first service, Monica Reeves. You can Google her. Do not ask me for her cell phone number. She can decide whether you get that. But uh, I have it, and I texted her. I said, hey, I'm getting something wrong with my eye. It's getting swollen. By Wednesday, my eye was swollen almost shut. And she gave me some eye ointment and some steroids and all that, so I could just stand up here, and you guys weren't like, is he in ultimate fighting? Did he get beat up by Mark Zuckerberg? Like, what happened? Um, These people thought because they had eye ointment and they could always heal the blindness that they could see. But look at what Jesus says, Revelation chapter 3. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You don't see this. Wait, Pitiful, poor, we're not poor, blind, we got ointment, naked. No, we do textiles. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, pure gold, so you can become spiritually rich. White clothes, that would be pure, contrary to their black wool to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes. Oh, we have that, so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door. I want intimacy with you. But there's a problem. And you can't even see it. Here's the reality of what authenticity is. It's not perfection. But it is being perfectly honest. And you can't even do it on your own. You need other people. And so we read this passage and we see, happens to Ananias, three hours later, happens to Sapphira. And then it says that there's great fear amongst the whole church. What do you think that was like? I'm going to tell you right now. If one of you lies in the lobby and falls down dead, I am on my, I'm confessing sins. Like, I'm not thinking anything I can think of. When I was six, you know, God, my mom asked if I ate all my dinner and I gave it to the dog. I'm sorry. Still here. All right. Seven. When I was seven. When I was 12. Whoa, that was a year. Hold on. But even if I did that, and I went like through every year, I'm not going to remember. I don't even know. I can't remember, praise God. And I just didn't even know about it. I don't even know about some stuff now. 
So I'm ending up in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, show me if there's any offensive way in me. And one of the ways he does that is other people. It's too bad Sapphira didn't say to Ananias, that's a terrible idea. Like if I came up with that idea, the Holy Spirit a lot of times sounds a lot like Shanna. No, we're not going to do that. But if they just had one other couple? The early church, one of the things that made the community special was their authenticity. We're actually told to confess our sins to one another. We're supposed to be demonstrating the character of God. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What's Ananias doing? Grasping for glory that's not his. He released that, became obedient. He humbled himself, the text says, Philippians 2. Became obedient even to death on a cross. And the humble get exalted, and his name is above every name. But God opposes the proud. Antidote, authenticity, which requires humility. And here's the promise. The problem, pride. There's power and authenticity, but the promise is transformation. And I believe this is what God wants us to take away from this passage. Not just, if you lie, you might die. It's, it may be. I don't know if they had heart attacks. not sure what happened here. But great fear seized all the people. So there's community transformation that's taking place. And then look at verses 12 through 16. Remember what the prayer was when they were alone and privacy. Now we're getting to see the public ministry. Authenticity and privacy, power and public ministry. Verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders. That's what they were praying. Signs point people in a direction. They're pointing them to God. Among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Some of you have been to Israel. You've been here. This porch, probably about 10,000 believers at this point. Here's an interesting verse. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Verse 14, though, does the scripture contradict itself? Look at this verse. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So nobody joined them, but they were added to the number. We'll get back to that. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem bringing, and so there's other people that are bringing the sick people, so even these people had other people, and those tormented by impure spirits. So some was physical, some was spiritual, some were physically sick, and some were tormented by evil spirits, and all were healed. Application, application here. You want to see the marks of a church, even with sinners in it, that lives functionally as a family, there's three marks at least in this passage. The first one is this. They take sin seriously. Think about what Peter could have done as the leader. We don't know how he found out. How did he know that that wasn't the number? It was the Holy Spirit? We just read the passage and go, well, Peter just knew that wasn't the number. What about maybe, maybe what happened was word got out that Ananias was saying that he was giving all of the money and the person that bought the property, maybe not a believer, came to Peter and said, that ain't all the money because here's what I paid. And then Peter said, is this the amount? And he's got another sheet of paper that shows what that guy says the amount is. And it's not like Ananias called up the Holy Spirit and said, hey, Holy Spirit, I've got some misinformation I'd like to give you about myself. But Peter said he lied to the Holy Spirit. 
So he equated presenting yourself as better than you are to the congregation as lying to God. So God's gracious, and he's kind, and he's merciful. That's all true, but he's also just and righteous, and you want to talk about the holy part of the Holy Spirit? Right here. He hates sin. Peter could have just said, I mean, who cares? We're going to use the money. We'll put a children's expansion on a Solomon's colonnade. It'll be great. But instead he goes, hey, I care about your heart. You're lying, and it's toxic enough that it'll infect the whole body. So we're going to deal with it. It's not like Peter was sinless. We oftentimes talk about Peter's failure and his denial before Jesus was raised from the dead, and then afterwards as if he was perfect. Well, he gets rebuked later in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul for people-pleasing, acting one way with one group and another way with another group. He's publicly rebuked in the Bible after being the guy who preaches the message that we're all sinners. It's easy for me to tell you about serving my daughter and the foibles that happened and all that kind of... It's not as easy to tell you about the phone call I got from another kid and I lost my temper, said words I shouldn't have said. We're all sinners. Do we, do we take it serious? God does. We want powerful transformation. It's not like God can't use unclean vessels. Maybe you've heard that said in church. God only uses clean vessels. Oh, really? Because nobody in the Bible. Moses? Guys, murderer? Can't speak straight, lying, Abraham lying about his wife, saying to his sister. Like, people are all a mess. It's always God's grace. But he does care about your heart. And if you're genuinely a follower, the Bible says he disciplines those he loves, sometimes to death. Yeah, I think Ananias and Sapphira were believers. And I think they served as a message to all the other believers. And so fear comes across the whole group. And that's a good thing. See, a lot of times we get fear wrong. You get these trite little statements during the pandemic, faith over fear. What are you talking about? Our problem is we fear the wrong stuff. We don't fear God. Even though the Bible's real clear about it. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if we say, well, I don't fear God. He's my homeboy. You're like, you're a fool. So next time you see a Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, walk up to the person and go, hey, what's up, fool? They'll think you're being nice. Trust me, they'll think you're being nice. You're not. It's awesome. We'll have a guest one day. You'll see me do it and be like, I can't believe he just did that. Whatever. Jesus tells us what to fear in Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 10, verse 26. He says, so do not be afraid of them. Talking about people. Don't be a people fearer. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. God does know the heart or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roost. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. He loves you. And so he doesn't want you in sin. 
take sin seriously, and live generously. We see here and throughout the Scriptures in chapter 2, we saw in the passage we were in last week, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And then you see Barnabas is a good example of that. But then Ananias did the same thing, and it wasn't a good thing, but he was giving money, and it was apparently enough money to be passed off as if it was the whole amount for the land. Generosity is not just about money, but money is a great test. The Bible tells us a direct connection from our heart to our money. And every once in a while, people come to me and say, we should be like the early church, and usually it's younger believers. I don't mean younger, like, like spiritually and emotionally younger, immature, but like college age. And here's the thing, context is always key. Most college students are broke. They like free stuff. I was there too. I get it. And so they might lean towards like socialism or whatever, and I'm even trying to have a political argument. God, God does not prescribe socialism or capitalism. He actually wants theocentric, where he's the king. But I personally lean towards capitalism because I think it motivates people. And the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So if you've got a relative that's like, you're supposed to take care of your family, and you're like, you're supposed to get a job. Now, things happen, though, where sometimes they can't. What's happened, the real context of this passage Some of these people have been canceled. Nobody's buying goods from their store because they're believers. And so some of the believers who have assets, like Barnabas, like Ananias, are selling out of their wealth their assets. Not so everybody can have the same amount. It's not socialism. So you can have groceries. So you can feed your family. The question we need to ask ourselves is, not how should everybody just pool all their resources and everybody at Southridge get a check every week for the same amount? No, it's not that. It's not some system. This was free will. They were doing it to take care of one. The question is, if your brother or sister in Christ got canceled because of their stand for Jesus, not because they weren't willing to work, would you go down to one car so they could have groceries? Would you sell a house? Would you live on less yourself? It's a spirit of open-handedness that's happening here. In fact, in the early church, it's interesting. They weren't doing fundraisers like, hey, this is the way we do it. We were taught this. We've had consultants come and tell us to do it too. And so if you've been out of church, Starbucks is six bucks. If people would stop that once a week, and so they do four days a week, then they'd have one less Starbucks, one week, to four weeks, and then they, you can give $25 a month, and we could build this. And we're like trying to twist your arm. Do you know in the early church they had to argue with people like, stop giving? You don't have the money to give. They're giving out of their poverty. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because what happens is when you realize you're part of an eternal kingdom, this temporary stuff doesn't mean as much. And then you start to grasp the biblical idea of stewardship, that the temporary stuff here actually influences the stuff we're going to get there. It's not the same for everybody? Are you serious? These people got it. Look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy, and don't miss this, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I, te- this is what I'm telling you, Paul's saying, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So can't you just imagine, Paul? Stop. You don't even have this to give. It's our joy. We're overflowing with joy, even in our extreme poverty and being persecuted, that we get to give. Look at what it says, verse 4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. This is the key. And then, by the will of God, also to us. 
Paul reminds the believers that are drifting in Hebrews, don't you remember the joy when you gave up your houses to follow Jesus? Don't you remember the joy of that? I saw a story in, I think it was November, of a guy named Jeffrey Holt. He's in New Hampshire. You can look it up on cbs.com. Interesting story. The guy was a caretaker of a mobile home park. He taught driver's ed, but he didn't drive a car. He rode a tractor around town. In fact, we got a picture of him. You can see, uh, not the most dapper addressing individual there. Uh, Clothes are kind of worn out, and his best friend said about him, we didn't think that he went without, but he didn't have much either. He lived in the trailer, in the trailer park. His bed actually, uh, the legs of his bed went through the floor of the bedroom, and there wasn't much furniture in the trailer as a whole. But when he died, the town only has 4,200 people in it. When he died, he left that town where his trailer park was at, $3.8 million. And no one knew he was a multimillionaire. Now, they did know that he was the kind of guy that would come over and fix their stuff. They thought of him as a handyman. They knew that he liked to serve other people. He lived generously in a lot of different ways, but no one knew he had the money. Except for one guy. It was a politician that was friends with him in town. He said, but I didn't know he had that much. I knew he liked to go down by the pond and he would read investment magazines and he'd talk about his investments. He said, but I didn't know he had that much. They interviewed his sister afterwards, 81 years old. She said their dad is a professor, and Jeffrey had dyslexia, so he couldn't read very well, and she always sensed that he felt like he was a disappointment to dad because he didn't excel in academics, but dad also was an investor, and so he said maybe he was trying to do that. She said, I knew he had investments. I didn't know he made that much. He invested in communications before they invented the cell phone. (laughs) He did well but it wasn't for him. I don't know if he's a believer. Well, believers, would you do that to live generously? God loved us so much he gave his son. And what he's trying to do through the family of God is demonstrate his character to this world that has rejected him. If we take sin seriously, that'd be counter to the world. If we live generously, that's counter to the world. But then notice that statement where there were people that didn't dare join them. And I'd say that the third characteristic is it's people that dare greatly. It says in the text, and I told you it might be a contradiction, so verse 13, no one else dared to join them. So they're gathering together, Solomon's colonnade, God's doing wonders, there's signs that are pointing people to God, they can see there's something special happening here, but no one dared join them. And if you start, you just skim through Acts after this, on your own, you see, whether it's the Apostle Paul, 180 degree turn in his life, that's a risk, dare you see Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, that's a dare. You see there's conflict amongst the church as a whole. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. Do we have to do this Jewish stuff in order to be approved by God? Some people are saying yes, some people are saying no. How do we figure this out? Got to work through the family issues. That's hard, dare. Even Paul, when he's in Acts chapter 20, and he's talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he says, some of you are the wolves. They're going to come and threaten this body. It's pretty bold. Dare. Philippian jailer, dare. It's all over. They're walking by faith, taking risks. But these people are saying, we don't want to do that. No one dared join them. But then the next verse, if you're a skeptic, jump on this. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord. See, the Bible contradicts itself. What's happening here? Some theologians try to say he's talking about two different audiences or at two different times. I don't think so. The text doesn't indicate that. What I think is happening here, but I don't know, what I think is happening here is that Luke, 
who writes this, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, doctor, very analytical. He's trying to put us in a tension because life is tension. And he's taking something that's not simple and he's showing us the complexity of it. Yeah, on their own, no one dared join. But I think what he's saying is there were some genuine converts. See, today when we talk about joining the church, it's, these are the questions I get asked. What's the benefit of me joining the church? How will this help my family? What assets am I getting? What, am I getting special access to something? But these people are going, no, I'm not locking arms with those people. I might lose all my money. I might get canceled. I might get killed. But some were, and that was a demonstration that they were being genuinely converted from this temporary world into an eternal kingdom and then called on mission to be witnesses of those things. And then we see what happens next. It says, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people, people brought the sick into the streets. The image there, it's a present tense, continual thing. They kept bringing, people kept flowing from other towns to the Solomon's colonnade. They're believers and non-believers there, but they'd bring them to the belief. And hopefully just even when Peter was speaking to them, his shadow would touch them. And laid them on beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And then don't forget, Luke is a doctor, physician. Look at how he clearly differentiates. Verse 16, crowds gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing continuously sick. The word for sick means weak, unable on their own. And those tormented by impure spirits so that spiritually Sick, like Ananias, even believers can be this way. And all of them were healed. The word for healed, we kind of gloss over that sometimes and just assume like in that moment, everything was fixed. Well, the word is actually where we get our word therapy from. And when you look at the word and how it's used, some places it's used where there was miraculous healing. And so that can happen. Just like there can be instantaneous death. But then also an Seemingly more common is then maybe some of those people started to experience the healing as they walked alongside one another in relationship, even the messy relationship of the early church. But what set them apart is they took sin seriously and they lived generously and they dared greatly with one another. And through walking in that process, some of them experienced healing. The interesting thing about healing, too, is that you need to know that you have an illness. There's an interesting story in Mark chapter 2, you can read on your own, where Jesus was with a bunch of sinners and the Pharisees, religious leaders that are hypocrites, come to him and say, what are you doing with these kinds of people? And he says, um, only sick people need a doctor. I've not come for the righteous, I've come for sinners. Which puts the ball in their court of saying, do you have sin that you need dealt with? And I want to ask you today, do you need healing? Why don't we all bow our heads and close our eyes? And I just want to ask you today, maybe, maybe the Lord has pricked your heart about your own pride. Hopefully not about somebody else's pride. If so, I would talk to him about that right now. Maybe there's some things that you haven't seen that he's helping you see, like he's talking to the church in Laodicea. He does see your heart, and that's what he wants is your heart. He's not after your money and your time and your talent and your service and your skills and he wants your heart. That other stuff comes when he gets your heart. He doesn't want the other stuff. Ananias and Sapphira should clearly illustrate that without your heart. 
Does he have your heart? It says that their sin in the passage actually is they kept back some of the money for themselves. It was their money. They could do what they wanted. It was the fact that they were... It's the same language that's used for Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Hiding things from God, from God's people. Some of you might have secret sin that needs to be dealt with. Some of you have been hurt, maybe family hurt. Maybe the stuff that I was talking about at the beginning of the service when you raised your hand, and maybe it was a simple argument, or maybe it's unhealthy relationships, or maybe somebody robbed you of an inheritance, or maybe somebody abandoned you, a spouse, or betrayed you, or there's been divorce, or disagreements, and you're hurt. Or maybe you've caused some of the hurt, and you don't even know how to fix it, and God can bring healing, and God's people can be part of that process. And we're going to have some people that are going to go off to the side of the room today, and they'll be available to pray, male and female, leaders in our church, people we trust. Maybe not all the answers, but can help you, resources, and pray with you and pray for you. Maybe you don't want to talk to anybody yet, but you can come to the front and kneel down at the steps if you want. Pastor Bryce is going to come lead us in a song in a moment. You can stay seated in your seat. I would challenge you not to sing if you're still doing business with God. The sick were those who were weak, Jesus says in Matthew 11. All who are weary and burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. Maybe you're physically ill. In the book of James, it says that you should go to the elders of your church and I'll anoint you with oil and pray for you. But it says first, if you have sin, confess your sin. That might be why you're sick. Not always, sometimes. I will anoint you with oil. You just go to one of the people on the side and say, can the elders come do that for me? for my spouse, for cancer or divorce, sin, addiction, whatever it is. Impure spirits, lies and deception you're believing maybe. Or physical ailments. Father, will you heal? Will you bring a spirit of healing through this room right now? Walk up and down the aisles. Heal people who have church hurt. Heal people that have family hurt. Heal people that have caused those things. Heal people that can't see their own sins, their own hearts. Open eyes. Help us to be a church, Southbridge specifically, not just the church in America, this house. You talk about the church as the house of God. This house. Will you help this house to take sin seriously? To be generous with one another, not just with money, but with money. Also with grace. Think about Barnabas and later how Paul's ready to cancel somebody and he says, no, 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 let's give him some more time. And later Paul request that same person to come help them. None of us are where we ultimately will be. Will you meet us where we are? Will you heal, direct, guide? Be gracious and patient with us, but don't let us stray too far. And don't let us stop taking risks. Move us by faith. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would break generational curses, that you would heal diseases, spiritual and physical. Right now, in this moment, would you miraculously quickly heal, change, or at least start the process for all, like this passage says? Bring functionality out of dysfunction, even with sinners. I'm going to say amen in a moment, but doesn't mean you have to stop. Like I said, there's people available to pray with you or you can come down on the front and if you want to just stay seated, you can. Or if you want to stand and let people sing this truth over you, maybe that's part of your healing, you can do that as well. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.